welcome uh, everyone to our latest episode of Guardians of the Flame. Um, this is a series of podcasts where we're interviewing all kinds of people, uh, people who are victims of the troubles, peacemakers, activists, religious leaders, musicians. Um, it's a real, real privilege to be in the beautiful city of Derry, Londonderry. Um, we have to kind of technically give it the two names. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're, we're up in this beautiful uh, big city on the, right on the north coast of Northern Ireland. And um, I'm here to interview Richard Moore. And many of you listening may have heard of Richard before, uh, but some of you may not have. And I think you'll find his story compelling and um, incredibly faith building and inspiring. So uh, Richard, thanks for taking the time to, um, to sit with us and to uh, chat about your story a little bit. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for asking. Yeah. So Richard, um, should we just start by you just telling us about your childhood in Derry? You, you were kind of growing up just um, in the early days of the Troubles. The Troubles started in 1969. Um, can you just trace a little bit of what your childhood would have been like up until the, the, the time when you were shot? Hi, well, I was um, born in 1961. And I, at that time, we lived in a, a house in the Craigan Estate. And the Craigan Estate is uh, just um, on the hill, uh, on the west bank of the river, you know, looking over Derry, really. And um, there was 12 children in our house, nine boys and three girls. I was the second youngest. And of course, obviously, my mommy and daddy were there as well. And what, you know, the Craigan Estate was a lovely place to live. I would describe my childhood as a very happy and pleasant childhood, you know, and I'm probably um, someone who remembers the troubles, or remembers Derry before the conflict started. And I can remember out in the street playing football with my friends, playing all the games that children play. And, you know, the Craigan being a very quiet, peaceful place. I can remember the, the Bobby on the beat. I remember the policeman patrolling the streets of walking around the streets of I remember one time grabbing our football and running with it because we didn't want the policeman to see us playing football. So I, I do remember that level of normality. And then what seemed like overnight for me, the Craigan became like a war zone. There were shootings, bombings, riots on a daily basis. You know, it was a really strange thing to see all the men who lived in the area you know, all out digging up the pavements, breaking up the pavements. They use them as missiles, they throw at the British Army or the police, or they build barricades, or people going around and hijack vehicles, there were buses, trucks, all been set on fire, you know, and everything just seemed to suddenly change. And in a strange kind of a way, it was very exciting. You know, uh, we had a barricade at the end of our street, you know, and we had what, a vigilante hut at the end of our street, which was basically, like a workman's shed that was put at the end of the street and the men out of the street used to keep vigilante at night there at, at one stage because the Craigan became what was officially known in those days as a no-go area. So I can remember, um, you know, the men up there at night just keeping an eye out for the British Army or the police to make sure they weren't infiltrating the area, coming in to do raids or anything like that. So that was kind of the atmosphere. But you know, my school was just on the edge of the estate and, and you know, I can remember walking to school in the mornings and everything being normal. I can remember my brother Jim used to give me a lift to school in the mornings if I got up early enough in the car and, and uh, you know, just, it was all very pleasant and very um, peaceful place to live until, as you, as, as you say, around 68, 1969, it just all changed. And then uh, what I saw was that uh, you had actually had an uncle in the Bloody Sunday, the, uh, an uncle that was killed, is that right, in, in Bloody Sunday? That's you, right. What do you remember of like, because uh, one of the interviews we did, uh, I was telling you earlier with Liam McCluskey, you know, who would have been a, a probably a teenager, I suppose, uh, in those days. Do you remember like Bloody Sunday itself and kind of the events around that? Aye, I do all right. I mean, I was, most of my family went to the march on Bloody Sunday. Um, and funny, I remember that day. I remember a couple of things about that day. First of all, I remember I was out in the street playing football. And I remember the men 
Austart and woman certainly walk towards Bishop's Field. And that was just further up Craigan from where I lived. So I can remember seeing everybody, you know, starting to move towards Bishop's Field. Uh, you know, the adults. When, I, and when I'm talking about adults, I'm talking about 17 year olds, 18 year olds, because they all look like adults to me when I was only, you know, 10 years of age. And then I remember my sister and her boyfriend at that time took me for a run in the car. And we ended up down uh, near the city centre. And we were actually behind the military lines. And I don't think the march had fully sort of reached the city centre or down, down near the bog side at that stage. But I was still I'm, I'm behind it there. And I, I remember seeing people all gathered who obviously weren't at the march. And I, I can only assume were from, say, the other side of the community. They were um, gathered there behind the military lines. So I remember doing that. And then, obviously those things only become significant in hindsight. At the time, you didn't think any significance, didn't place any significance on it. But then the next thing I, later on that day, I was out on the street with my friends and I spent my whole day in the street. You know, we all did, we were all big families in the Craigan. Lots of children, we just hung about together all day. And I can remember down at the end of our street, there's a place called Broadway. And um, as the march ended or broke up, people began to make their way back up to the Craigan. And that would have been one of the routes and, uh, up under the Craigan. And I remember seeing one of the men coming up and he had tears in his eyes. And I remember him saying, there's murder down there. Now, I don't know if the tears in his eyes were because he was upset or it was from the CS gas that the, that the, the, that the army would have fired at the, the crowd. But very quickly I began to, there began, you, know, you began to feel this sense that something wasn't right. And later on that evening, um, I was out in the street and me, I noticed that my, I saw my brother Liam arriving at the house and he looked very serious and he left and he looked very serious. And you know, where normally he would have been waving at me or smiling or whatever, he, he wasn't, he was literally walking with a sense of purpose or almost like anger towards his car. And then, the big thing for me was my Uncle Wooly arrived. And my Uncle Wooly lived in Donegal. And we really only saw my Uncle Wooly at set times a year, you know, where he come to visit. It was a, a, like a visit. Him and his wife used to come to our house to see my mommy. And um, I remember seeing my Uncle Wooly going to our house about, you know, it was like twilight. So it must have been, well, maybe it was dark in a way, and it was maybe about six or seven o'clock. Again, I didn't put any still you know, store on it, all and thinking, what's my Uncle Wally doing up tonight? And then when I went under the house, my mommy was crying, and there was this sort of silence atmosphere in our living room, and the news television was on, and whoever was in the house were just looking at the television. And um, I remember my mommy saying to me, your Uncle Jared was shot today. And, um, and, and then it was just, there was like a witting game going on. And it's funny, like I was only 10, but I just really felt that there were a very worried feeling in the house. And, um, you know, I think my mommy and daddy were just waiting for my brothers, my older brothers, to arrive home from the march because at that stage nobody knew fully who always shot and the, but the news headlines was coming in saying you know there were six people shot dead in Derry and then it was saying you know 10 people or whatever so as the TV was announcing the numbers you know my mum and them were just sitting waiting to see what other bad news could arrive at the house you know. And then um, you would have been I think you were about 10 years old at that time is that right? I was know? only 10 I. Yeah and then it was only just a couple of months after that that you yourself were 
uh, shot by a rubber bullet. Is that, isn't that That's right? right. Uh, I think we'll maybe after this interview we'll get a short we interview with you outside. Um, Open but, Rose Mount, yeah. yeah, but if you can just kind of uh, sketch a little bit of what that day was like and what your memory of it is like. Well, I was shot on the 4th of May, 1972. It was about three months after Bloody Sunday. And um, what I remember about that day was it was a lovely spring day, you know. Uh, and back in those days, like I went home every lunchtime, used to have a longer lunch break at school and I used to go home for my lunch every, every lunchtime. Uh, I didn't, I only lived two minutes or three minutes walk from the school really, so. And I remember being in the house at lunchtime and um, my sister had just bought a new house and my older brother who was just above me, Gregory, he was maybe 15 or 16 at the time years old and he was being kept off the half day to go and help my sister in the new house and I remember asking could I be kept off as well and obviously I was too young they weren't going to keep me off I'd be no help and my mum and daddy and said no you have to go back to school so that's what I remember in terms of the build up then we just got out of school as normal that day about 20 past three in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, we had a, a race. There was a couple of ways you could go home. Uh, you could leave the school and there was no agreed or defined way. You just followed whoever direction somebody else might have led on. And this particular day, they decided to leave via the Helen Street entrance to the school. And it meant going up through the football pitch of St Joseph's School and coming out at the bottom of Westway. Um, so you were running through another school basically and you were passing houses that backed onto the school. So the school, you know, the, didn't have a, a fence or anything. It was just the backs of the houses that kind of, that, you know, that surrounded the school at that, that part. And um, there was an army lookout post positioned in between a gap in the houses, but that faced into the school as opposed to backed into the school, that faced into the school playground at the football pitch. And I remember running up there, and uh, the next thing I remember was, uh, I remember seeing the, the army lookout post and approaching it, but like I've seen it a thousand times, like so. It was not unusual. And uh, the next thing I remember then is I, I woke up and I was lying on the school canteen table mm. where my music teacher, Mr. Giles Doherty, you know, he heard the bang and he came over and he found me lying on the ground. He lifted me and carried me in and put me on the, the school, carried me in and put me on the school canteen table, you know. And I remember, uh, I remember feeling them tugging at me, you know, my shirt or my jumper or whatever. And I, I discovered afterwards they were trying to cut my school bag off me, you know. And I remember um, Mr. Doherty saying to me, you know, what's your name, son? And I told him my name was Richard Moore. So for him it was pretty shocking because he knew me very well, you know, but he wasn't able to identify me because of the extent of the injuries. You know, my nose was completely flattened. My eyeballs were out of their sockets. And me, you know, my face was just a bloody mess. Uh, and then the only other thing I remember after that, that particular, at that particular point in time, was being in the ambulance. And I remember I could hear a siren in the background. And my daddy and my sister were beside me uh, in the ambulance, you know. And I remember uh, a couple of years ago, we had the privilege of having you down in Ross Trevor our little village itself um, for the Ross Trevor Literary Festival that um, right. Billy Graham puts on. And uh, I just remember hearing your story and I just I was very moved by it. And you, you talked about just, yeah, those days afterwards and in the months and how you began to initially, um, how you dealt with your, the fact that you now were blinded by the rubber bullet. 
Can you just trace a little bit of those, how your kind of perspective on it changed over the months and years? Uh, well, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, initially I thought that I couldn't see because of the bandages on my eyes. So I didn't realize I was actually blind until about a month after I was shot. My brother Noel, he took me for a walk uh, up and down our back garden. And all along, I, I, as I say, I thought the bandages were preventing me from seeing. And um, so he took me for a walk this particular day and he said to me, do you know what has happened? And I said, I knew I was shot. And he said, do you know what damage was done? And I said, no, and that's when he told me that um, that I would be blind for life, you know. And um, to be honest with you, I, I accepted it there and then, um, you know, until I went to bed that night and was a bed on my own. I, I cried for the one and only time of blindness that I remember. And I, I cried because I realized for the first time that I was never going to actually see my mommy and daddy again. And, uh, you know, I often say, like, you know, to a 10-year-old boy, I suppose you don't think about the bigger things in life. You don't think about getting a job. You don't think about your education. You don't even think about what blindness means for you for the rest of your life, really. Um, all I felt was this enormous sense of loss. I was never going to physically see my mommy and daddy's faces again. But, you know, um, but after that, you had to be getting on with the rest of your life, really. And, you know, tomorrow always comes, as they say, and the next day came for me, and I had to get up and uh, out of my bed and start to lead life as a blind person. I would always say that day was the first day of the rest of my life as a blind person. Mm -hmm. And it probably really was, because then I was starting to deal with the fact that my eyesight wasn't a the lack of eyesight wasn't a temporary measure. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that you know, there's a lot of things helped me adjust to blindness that, that you probably could never plan, really. One of the things is the fact that um, I was 10 years of age, and maybe at 10 years of age, you don't fully realize what blindness means, and you don't, you don't, you don't have an adult reaction. Like, if you lost your sight now, then you would have an adult reaction to that, which was probably much more devastating than say I had as a 10 year old boy. So I was a child and I responded to it like a child. And um, so not knowing the seriousness of it, not taking on board the consequences of what it means for the rest of your life, mm -hmm. potentially, then I didn't have all those sort of emotional reactions to that degree. And then, you know, the fact that I was a 10 year old boy, or the fact that, sorry, the fact that I was blinded by the British Army in a strange kind of a way, it helped. Because overnight, I was very popular. And people used to come to meet me from all over the place, you know. Bishop Daly coming to the house, John Hume coming to my house. You know, the local mayor, um, people calling to see me at, in the house, you know, and I never knew. And then you had every journalist from every network from hundreds of countries across the world coming to interview me. And this blindness thing was actually good crack almost. It was positive, you know what I mean? So by the time the dust settled, and as you know, those things don't last forever. By the time the dust settled and the journalists stopped and people stopped visiting and all that, I think that I had adjusted to blindness. Uh, sufficiently that they, they, that left me in a position I could cope with whatever was coming my way. But, you know, I always say there's two sides. Broadly, there's two sides to blindness. One is emotional, the other is physical. Uh, and the emotional side of blindness, or the physical side of blindness is getting from A to B and how do you do things. Um, and Thanks to the support from my family, from my friends, and then I was able to go back to 
my school that I was at. I went back to the Rosemount Primary School, then I went on to the local secondary school. Uh, you know, I was able to um, do all that because teachers facilitated me, because my friends facilitated me and my family supported me big time. And, you know, I was able to lead a reasonably normal life. All right, I'm not going to pretend that there was times when I missed my eyesight. You know, like for example, I was a football fanatic. And when I would go out the street after coming home from school or whatever, all the mates would be out playing football. And I used to have to stand on the sidelines, basically. Um, and quite often, I imagine what that must have been like for my parents. You know, because I'm sure, in fact, I've no doubt, they were looking out our window, watching me in the street. And, you know, for them to see their 10-year-old boy not be able to do the things he'd done a month earlier or two months earlier, and been on the sidelines of certain games and stuff as a child, it must be very difficult, it must be heartbreaking. And uh, so, but I, I sort of, try to mix the best I could, you know, uh, you know, and try to, you know, maybe the, if there was a free kick in the game, the boys would have let me come on and take it, or if they were telling they would have let me come on and take it, you know, uh, just to make me feel part of it, you know, it's, uh, and all right, it, it almost seems like silly in a way, but in another way, it was just very important for me. Which football team do you support? Back in those days, I, I never really had a football team. Um, I, I kind of used to get all the wee cards, you know, with different footballers on them and all that sort of stuff. But I, I, I suppose Celtic would have been the team that I kind of was aware of most. And that was primarily because my aunt lived in Glasgow. Mm. And you know, so, would have just won the European Cup a few years earlier. Aye, but I wasn't entrenched and, you know, I used to watch the World Cup and stuff like that or, you know, TV matches and loved it all. You know, I can remember, privileged that I've actually saw Pelly mm. play football, you know, on TV mm. and, and all that sort of stuff. So I loved all that, but I wasn't really tied into any one team. I hadn't developed that sort of, mm. that sort of affiliation at that stage. Yeah. Obviously, in later years, I, bec I became a big Derry City fan, which I still am. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the f as I say, the physical side of blindness, you know, would have been the most challenging, you know. And I think, you know, I did take things like panic attacks, after being shot that the army was near the area or there was a foot patrol in the street that would have, sometimes I would have took a bit of a panic attack, you know, or if there were an army Saracen nearby, you know, Land Rovers, I would have taken a bit of a panic attack. Yeah. You know, um, there was a time I couldn't have sat in a chapel like this mm. without taking a panic attack okay. because the echo yeah. used to kind of disorientate me. Okay. And uh, so all those things, it's all just newness, strange, different environment, blindness. And then, of course, this emotional side of blindness. But I don't think the emotional side of blindness would be clicked on the litter in life. Okay. And um, we, uh, in our interviews, we've interviewed lots of people around mm -hmm. the subject of forgiveness. And yeah. for some people, um, they've very clearly said, no, we wouldn't forgive, we can't forgive. Yeah. Um, but. And then others are very strongly like say, yes, I forgive and I forgive. You've spoken about that, I know. I mean, can you share with us a little bit about what that word means to you and what that journey was like for you to kind of think about what forgiveness could be like? Uh, well, I was kind of in my, let's say my young adult years. I had I come out of, I went to school and got my exams, went to university. I was compensated by the British with half the money I bought a house, with other half I bought a pub. Then I had bought a second pub, and so when I came out of university, I had two pubs. I went down the, and I had, there was an office above one of the pubs, and then they run my own business. You know, and then I learnt the guitar after I was shot, and played in bands and stuff like that. I had a recording studio. Um, so, I, uh, at one stage, you know, I, I began to reflect on my life, really. And, you know, I used to wonder why I was so happy about blindness. Why I never even thought about blindness. I was just so happy and content. And, you know, I boiled it down to a number of things. Like, I boiled it down to the fact that I come from a good family. 
boiled down to the fact that I come from a good community. And I also acknowledge the fact that, you know, that despite the poverty and despite the troubles in Northern Ireland, I was still able to go to school and get an education for myself and make a life for myself. But then, you know, um, it was only really around the year 2000 when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was in Derry. And I was in the audience at an event here, a very small event in, in, in Derry. And His Holiness began to talk about forgiveness. And it was only really he began to talk about forgiveness that I began to think, he's describing how I feel. And it just registered with me then, what I was actually experiencing in life was forgiveness. And I suppose what he talked about and what I would talk about now myself is, you know, like forgiveness is not about the other person. Forgiveness is about you. It's about your ability to understand and let go of the pain and the hurt that was inflicted upon you. And why would you want to do that? And the reason why you want to do that is because it, it kind of frees you up to move on. It frees you up to begin to um, live a contented life. If you're racked with anger and bitterness and hatred, then that has to be an obstacle to your ability to live a full, happy and contented life, and particularly to find, find happiness. And, you know, I think everybody wants to be happy in their life. And I think that, you know, that it's on our own hands on many occasions to find happiness. And there's probably a whole lot of ways that I haven't thought of that you can be happy in life. You know, some people think of it's, it could be more money, could be a better job, could be more holidays, could be a bigger house, could be a better car. And I do think all those things do contribute to the, the um, you, you've been, say, happy in life or whatever. They contribute. But I don't think they're the significant factors at all. I think how you feel inside. And I think forgiveness, particularly for people that have been badly hurt, is a great way to to begin to sort of deal with what's happened to you. And I, I do think if, if you're going to try and reconcile, you know, with, within yourself, with the person or the people that hurt you, then I think it's got to start within yourself. Forget about the individual. Forget about the other side. What they think and feel actually, in my view, doesn't matter. What matters is how you feel. And if you can begin to reconcile within yourself, then you'll be much happier. Now, I know there's all sorts of challenges around it and all sorts of thought processes around it. You know, some people over the years have said to me various things, like for example, does it let the other person off the hook? You know, the, the straightforward answer to that is, how does it? How does it let anybody off the hook? You know, if you're in, within yourself beginning to find a way that you can let go of the anger and the hurt, the pain that you feel, and begin to forgive the person, then how does that let the person off the hook? I, I don't know how it does, but I, I don't believe it does. The other thing that people have said to me that, you know, does it justify? Are you in some way justifying what the other person does? And I think it's a mistake to link forgiveness with, with justice. They're two different things. You know, Charles, the soldier that shot me, blinded a 10-year-old boy. That's wrong. It's wrong under any circumstances. There is no justification for it. 
Charles broke the law that day. Morally, he broke any moral law that you can think of. So what Charles said that day was totally and utterly wrong. So, but I forgive him. Does that mean it's right? What Charles said, of course it doesn't. There are people forgive people every day of their lives for doing things that are wrong. Okay, they could be smaller things. We forgive our children when they do something that'll hurt us. When they do something wrong, we forgive them all the time. Does it justify what they did? Of course it doesn't. Like if your child went out today and threw a stone and broke the window with the next door neighbor's car, I'm sure you could forgive them for doing it. But does it mean it was all right to break the window? Of course it doesn't. And it's the same thing for me. Um, and you met the soldier, Charles, is that right? Can you tell us about that and how, how did that happen? I, well, I mean, I was always curious about the soldier. You know, I didn't, the thing about, you know, the conflict in Northern Ireland, security and all that, you don't know very much about the person that carried out. I didn't know anything about the soldier. It was just a soldier to me. I knew absolutely nothing. And I was curious about him. And the other thing I would say was, I felt like I was in a relationship with him. Because like the most significant thing in my life was been shot and blinded. The person I am, the things that have done with my life, you know, has been dictated by that incident. And when you peel everything back, there's only two people involved, and that's me and the soldier. And um, so whether we liked it or not, that rubber bullet connected us. And, um, but I just felt I was looking under a shadow. And I had built up this image in my head of this 18-year-old soldier and an army lookout post on the edge of a no-go area, basically frightened out of his life. Barely a child himself. He was 18 when he No, that, that's my image. That of was him. your image of him. Yeah. yeah. And then I discovered when things relaxed and I found out the soldier's name and that, that when Charles shot me, he was a 34-year-old captain. And that was a bit of a mental adjustment. It was. There's no point in me pretending otherwise. I mean, I did get a shock when I realised this was an adult, a highly trained captain in the British Army. And, you know, he shouldn't even have been firing a rubber bullet. But that took me in maybe a 24-hour period to sort of get my head around that a bit. And then we met. And... Uh, How old were you then when you met him? I, well, it was 2005, so what do we see? Long later on in life. Uh, <laughs> 33 you're, years you're after that. Yeah. Uh, so I was 43, let's mm. say. Mm. And uh, I flew over to Scotland and met him in a hotel near the airport in Edinburgh. And, um, you know, it was an amazing experience, really. You know, it was the end of a 33-year-old mystery, first of all. It was, you know, getting to meet the man that caused so much hurt and so much pain to me and my life. And like, one of the things that was very important to me was my mommy and daddy. And they went through a lot of suffering, a lot of pain a lot of tears after I was shot. And, you know, their, their injury, I think, was every much, every bit as bad as mine, if not worse, and, you know, for what they had to experience. And, you know, so going over to meet the soldier, I felt I was carrying their journey. I was on, carrying their story with me too. And, it confirms a lot of things that the Dalai Lama used to talk about. Con confirmed a lot of things that I believe in. 
and that is, you know, behind every terrible act, there's a human being. And Charles was a father, he was a grandfather, you know, he was a husband. He cared about them, you know, and in that regard, um, when you can separate the action from the actor, when you can separate the deed from the, the person who carried out the deed, then you can begin to sort of think, well, what you did was bad, but you're not a bad person. And I suppose what I began to realise was, um, you know, sometimes good people do bad things. And if you can get behind or past or in some way circumvent the bad thing, then it's potentially possible to reach through to that person and for that person to reach through to you. And that's where I think me and Charles connected. And, um, and, uh, you know, that day, that four and a half hours or four and three quarters that we sat chatting was an incredible experience for me. I think I got more out of it than Charles did. You know, because, like, you know, it was just so fantastic. Not only to be able to forgive somebody, but to be able to tell them you forgive them. And another thing about forgiveness is like, you know, it won't change the past. The fact that I forgive Charles won't give me back my eyesight. Won't um, take away all the hurts that were caused. But it allowed me to move on with my life. And, um, you know, again, I realised that day when I was sitting with Charles, that in many ways, I'm sitting here, unable to meet you as a human being because of forgiveness. And, um, you know, and it, it provokes all sorts of th thought processes because, like, people used to say to me that they wouldn't have met Charles unless he said sorry. But I didn't put any preconditions on meeting Charles. I didn't ask him to say sorry. And I didn't make it as a condition that he would say sorry. And I knew Charles six years before he apologised. Wow. And if in those six years, if he had been sitting here with me and you now, and you had asked him, was he sorry? He would have said no. And, but six years after it, he said sorry. So what does that tell you? You know, it just tells you the potential of not setting any preconditions. The people need to, sometimes the perpetrator needs to go on a journey too. And Charles had to go on a journey with me. And all right, I facilitated that journey. And no victim should ever be obligated to forgive. No victim should ever be obligated to start that journey. But if he can, and that's why I talk about it, the last thing I would want, as anybody listening to this, this um, podcast or videocast, feeling that they're a lesser person because they can't forgive or they should forgive. Not at all. If you can't forgive, it's totally understandable. But if you're looking to find some kind of peace and you can't find it, if you're struggling with how you feel, then forgiveness opens up an opportunity for you. It's one avenue, and there's probably many others, but there's one avenue open to you that's fully in your hands that you can maybe begin to deal with the hurt and the pain or the cloud that's over you. And forgiveness is possibly that way to do that. So, you know, I tell my story and talk about forgiveness in that context. And, and um, I'm just, I'm really lucky and blessed that 
I, um, I feel that way because I didn't have to work at it, Johnny, you know? I didn't have to work at it. I got it from my mommy and daddy. It's amazing, uh, Richard. I, I think of um, I, I kind of the, I suppose it's a quote, or the, the strategy of Martin Luther King was not only to, um, to aim to set the oppressed free, but the oppressors free too. And it seems to me like what you're describing, you were already had been liberated. You know, you were, you were kind of a free man, but you were maybe with Charles even able to help him become more free, is that right? Aye, well, you know, at the time I didn't see it that way. I, I, I used to wonder where the soldier was. I used to wonder, did he ever think about me? But I never really thought that maybe in some way he was shackled by what happened. And, you know, Charles was retired an army major. I genuinely believe that he has that sort of stuff up her lip. And, you know, how does a conditioned soldier deal with, say, atrocities that they've been involved in. And one of the ways is, by, in some way, just by, you know, you know, by, you know, developing a shell, a hard shell, by turning your back to the wind, you know, by developing a mentality that, that allows you to release yourself. But then, you know, I don't think you ever fully escaped that. And I think when you look at Northern Ireland, for example, there are many people in Northern Ireland who carried out awful atrocities on all sides of the community and all sides of the conflict. Who, how do you escape that? Like we can, we can, you can hide from the public, you can hide, you can close your door and close the curtains, but at the end of the day, all of us know what we did in life. And I just think, if I done something like that, if I hurt somebody, I would love them to find it within their heart to be able to forgive me. It's not going to fix it. It mightn't even fully make me feel better, but it might in some way make me feel a bit better. And, you know, the fact that Charles eventually moved to the point where he said sorry to me, that to me, as so important, yeah. you know. Did it mean anything to you at that moment when he said the words, like what was the, what? I, we were actually sitting in a hotel in Derry here. And, um, you know, we were talking about the whole sorry thing because we were doing a talk the next day and it always comes up and I, look, I honestly knew, I knew Charles was sorry. He just couldn't say it, but, and I was trying to help him sort of deliver his message a bit softer because I think he looked very bad when he used to say in a public arena, you know, he used to say something like, no, I've never been asked to apologize, nor do I feel I need to apologize. And I used to think, Charles, you're a nicer person than that. You know, why do you have to say it that way? So I used to try and sensitively manage his PR about it. Because <laughs> it wasn't about me making him look bad. And it was about people seeing the good side of him. And um, so anyway, uh, that night we were talking about it. And I said, Charles, the, the sorry word will probably come up tomorrow. So do you want to give it a wee bit of thought? And he says, Richard, I am sorry. And I have to say it was a complete shock to me when he said it, you know, I nearly fell off the chair. And it did mean a lot. I didn't think it would mean as much to me as it did, but it did mean a lot to me. And I think it's because, one, I never expected it. And two, I never asked for it. So it was really nice when he said it. And, um, you know, I, I, I just realized that, you know, when you set down a precondition, I'm not going to talk to you unless you apologize first. Then that allows that person to hold a key to 
a chamber in your heart or in your mind that only that person can release or unlock. So because I didn't have that, then I was able to meet Char freely. He had no control over how I thought. So I was able to beat him and saying sorry wasn't necessary. And then I think I disarmed Charles. And I think Charles initially didn't know what way to handle me because probably didn't know my motivation, didn't know where I was going with all this. You know, there could have been an element, uh, an element of mistrust. I don't know if there was, but there could have been. That maybe I had ulterior motives for meeting them. You know, was I, was I going to try and take things forward legally or something? I don't know, but uh, it allowed me meeting them allowed an element of trust and friendship and openness they build up between us. And um, Richard, I think what's remarkable about your story is not only everything you've just said, but um, that you then, kind of later on in life, you kind of were able to transform yourself, not just from someone who can be at peace with the past, but really trying to change the future. And you set up a charity, Children in Crossfire. And can you just tell us a little bit about that, the charity, and how, it, how it came to you to set it up and some of what you do with the charity? Hi, well, I was in, uh, well, I suppose a couple of things. Uh, I acknowledge in my life the things that made the difference. You know, I already mentioned my family and that, I already mentioned community. And I talked about, you know, despite the poverty, there was, I was still able to go back to school and get an education. And I kind of, in my young adult years, I began to think, you know, when I was running my own business and that, I began to think, you know, every child, no matter how difficult the circumstances might seem, given the right level of support, given the right opportunity in life, can grow and blossom and contribute in a positive way. So, um, I remember doing the walk in Mississippi. Well, you, um, is it a trail of tears? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was a fundraiser for the help children in Somalia at the time, and I, I was just working my own business at that stage, but I, I, there's an organization in Dublin called AFRI, and they were organizing this thing, and the, the, the Trail of Tears was basically um, reenacting a walk carried out by the Choctaw Indians in America back in 1831, when they were put off their lands, and half the nation perished on their way to Oklahoma. But, I don't know, 17 years later or so, they heard about the Irish famine and they fundraised and sent money back to Ireland to help the Irish at that time. So this walk, that was kind of the backdrop of the walk, but you know, and it was kind of the highlight look. That was that was unjust then, but you still have injustice that's gone on in the world today, especially allowing children to die from hunger, you know, and, and that type of thing. So I went out and did that walk. And during that walk I began to think about my own life and began to think about what I want to do. And I suppose I began to realise that, um, that um, I, I began to feel that I would like to use my story and my blindness in a positive way. And if I can use my blindness, and not the blindness so much, but the fact that I'm an example of how so many people have made a difference to me, you know, um, then um, it would be good. So I made a decision to come home and sell out the business and set up Children in Crossfire. And uh, Children in Crossfire work today in Tanzania and Ethiopia. And we kind of work with children who are caught in the crossfire of poverty. Children that wake up every day and don't know where their next meal's going to come from, don't know what you know, if we don't have access to clean water or medicine or anything like that. And I suppose our main entry point in the, pro uh, the any project is early childhood education. So we focus on children under six years of age mainly, trying to provide access to preschool education. But in doing that then, you know, and, and what we do there, sorry, is we, we, we build classrooms, we... Um, train teachers, we provide classroom resources. But as well as that, 
it's very difficult for a child to learn if a child is hungry or a child suffer, suffer from malnutrition or some waterborne diseases like diarrhea and vomiting and stuff like that from drinking dirty water. So we try then to tackle some of the issues that impact on a child's health. So I would say our main focus is education and health. And um, so we're doing that now 25 years. And uh, it's, it's really wow. rewarding work. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I just want to, we're kind of coming to the end of our conversation. Uh, just wonder about your faith and what, what that has meant to you, you know, and how, how you've found that over the years. I mean, the, the, we say this almost every time. The title of our series is Guardians of the Flame. You know, Guardians of the Flame. Religion can be something that can be warming and comforting, or it can be something that can become toxic and, and burning. And uh, it seems, from what I kind of gather in your life, there's, there's some real faith that's brought peace to you, but also kind of inspired you in some way. Is that right? How would you describe the faith dimension of your, your journey? I, I mean, I think that when I talk about forgiveness, for example, I think that that came from my parents. And I think their faith was enormous. You would have never seen my mommy without her prayer book. My mommy talks about the hours that she spent sitting in the chapel, you know, asking God for help. And, you know, I always talk about, you know, the, the various things that helped me in my life. The fact that, as I say, I, I the support from my family, support from the community, been able to go back to school and get an education. And I talk about forgiveness. But there's also a very important factor that I can't ignore. And I call it kind of the X factor. Something that you can't put your finger on precisely. And I think that is spiritual. I think, without a doubt, God has played a big part in my life in terms of um, helping me be the person I am, giving me the personality that I had and the ability to cope and deal with things the way I have. And, um, you know, I would always say, like, it's not the power of my prayer. Mm -hmm. I think it was the power of my mom and daddy's prayers that moved the obstacles. Um, and I do think that your faith helps you every day, really. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and maybe the older you get, the more you realize that that connection with your faith, whatever it is, mm -hmm. is something that keeps you grounded keeps you focused, uh, and, and that's the way it's been for me. And so I, I certainly can't ignore the presence of spirituality in my life, you know. And can you tell us about the Dalai Lama? It's not every day I meet someone who's, who's uh, met the Dalai Lama. <laughs> um, tell us, can you tell us a couple of stories of your interactions with him? I will. Seems to be a very uh, humorous guy. You know, he is. He's, he's all of that. You know, the Dalai Lama for me is what we all should strive to be. You know, and um, he's somebody that has experienced, him and his people have experienced a, a, a gross injustice uh, that he's forced to live in exile. But despite all of that, all that provocation, he continually puts out the hand of friendship. He continually talks about the only way to deal with the injustice in his life or in all our lives is through peaceful means. Um, and I just think that that's an amazing example um, that we all should try to be. Um, I also think that he communicates in very simple terms and sometimes he makes a very complicated things sound very simple and he says in very simple ways, you know, and um, but he, he, he is very humorous uh, and, you know, he, he jokes with me about 
fancying my wife and all that sort of stuff, you know. And he used to say to me, oh, you know, you know, I can't see, you can't see your wife, but I can, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know. And, and, and so he, he does, I think he values humour and he knows the importance of humour in terms of communication. Like he's a brilliant communicator in that way. And, um, you know, but the Dalai Lama has come to Derry and Ireland here at my request on a number of occasions. Now, what world leader would do that? All joking aside. I mean, world leaders respond, respond to world leaders. They don't respond to some guy like Richard Moore sitting on a, uh, in Derry that wants to invite you over. But I think the Dalai Lama values people more than anything else. So, and what I have learned with him, it doesn't matter if you are President Obama, Richard Moore, or whoever. His, the way he treats you and the way he treats everybody is exactly the same. And he said, film stars, he said, you know, presidents and kings and across the world who all want to meet him. And at the end of the day, he values every human being in the same way. And that's what I've noticed about him. He would walk past you. I remember way back when I met him up in Belfast. And it was just after I met him for the first time and, and he had sort of been very much under my story. And I went, to, I was invited to a thing in Belfast. And the Dalai Lama was arriving in City Hall and I was in the room backstage. There was about another hundred people in backstage. And um, there was a, a British minister there to meet him coming in to the room. The, the minister for victims at the time. I think it was Adam, Adam Ingram. And so the official people were there. The Dalai Lama walks into the room and he spots me because he met me the day before. And he made a beeline right across the floor and sat down beside me and began to talk to me. Now, I was in shock that he was treated me like that because I'd only met him the day before. And we had chatted for a good half hour, an hour the day before. But he came and he sat beside me to the point where they had to eventually interrupt him and say, Your Holiness, can we introduce you to the minister here? That is not the Dalai Lama pretending to be anything. That is who he is. You are as important to him as anybody else in that room. And I think that's one of his greatest values that quite often people don't pick up on. Um, I'm just kind of, I don't think I've ever quite put it like this in an interview, but I'm just sitting here talking, talking to you and I, um, I feel like, uh, you know, in a country like this in, in Ireland, we're in, in Northern Ireland, politicians are the way they are and this tension at the moment, maybe at the moment, like there's more tension in the world of obviously the pandemic and stuff, but just a sense of insecurity about the future. And I, I feel in you a, a kind of just a real warmth, almost like you've, you've uh, I feel like you could just grab all the different sides together and give them we talking to, you know? Not in a telling off way, but just an encouraging way. I mean, I'm just wondering if, what do you have to say? I mean, to, to this country for a start, you know, where we've had so, so much trouble in the past and even around the world where there's tensions emerging, migration and populism and nationalism. And what, do you have anything to kind of, as we just conclude the interview, like just to almost give this kind of perspective from your life, words of advice or? Well, you know, um, I think we all have a responsibility. And um, what, what I kind of learned was, first of all, you've got to think about what do we actually want out of life? You know, ultimately, what do we want out of life? Because we're all going the same direction. And I think we've got to take responsibility for who we are. And quite often, 
I think politicians don't take responsibility for who they are. And they don't take responsibility for what they say. And you know, I learnt a long time ago, and I learnt it from my mommy and daddy, that what they say influences me enormously. And you can't separate your words from other people's actions. You can try to pretend that that happens, but the reality is that you can't separate your words from other people's actions. You can't separate how you behave and how that encourages others to behave. And where we've all got to take responsibility for ourselves, I think we've also got to take responsibility for how we influence others. And that's where I would say to politicians, for God's sake, you know, start taking responsibility for what you say and what you do. Because there is somebody out there who thinks or believes in every word that you say, who thinks that what you're saying is what they should be doing. And um, we talk about, say, Stormout. And I would say this to any individual, forget about Stormout. Forget about politicians. If you want to have real reconciliation, they don't hold the key to that. You do. And you've got the responsibility to find reconciliation. If we're going to be reconciliation in the community, or reconciliation in your street, or in your family, it's going to start with you. And one of the greatest things about blindness, right? I remember, I'll, t I'll tell you a story and that explains it better. Um, I remember when I was a young boy and had my eyesight in the Craigan. Now you're talking about Craigan Estate, all white people. And one day this black person come down our street. And me and my mates all saw him and we found it extremely strange. And of course we followed him. And the guy must have thought, what the hell? How do I get rid of all these things following, following us, following me? Then many, many years later, after I started Children of Crossfire and I was blind then, I went to Africa. And I remember standing in this remote village and children kept coming up and touching my hand. And I was told afterwards, I thought they were being affectionate. I was told they'd come up to check if the white came off, right? But it was only then that I realised how strange I looked to them. And I remember thinking about the situation in Craigan at the time where it was role reversed now, I was the only white person in this village. But their colour of their skin never occurred to me when I was in Africa. I never thought about that I looked different until after it happened. So what does that tell you about blindness? It, to me, I think we make too many judgments on people by how they look, if they're different. And one of the greatest things about blindness for me is you see the person first. I don't know what colour your skin is, Johnny. There's a camera crew around us here. I don't know what colour their skin is. And it doesn't matter to me. And that's how simple it is. That's how simple the whole thing in Northern Ireland, if I'm a nationalist, it's because I was born a nationalist. If I'm a unionist, it's because I was born a unionist. John Hume used to call it an accident of birth. But yet and all, we allow it to divide us. We're a lot stronger and more intelligent than that, we can understand that, you know, that we shouldn't allow that accident of birth to divide us. We shouldn't allow an incident in our life to continually divide us. And, you know, and the only way that's going to change, I think, is in your own heart. So I think, ultimately, we've all got to focus on 
educating our own heart. I think educating your own heart is a great way to end this. Um, maybe it's a challenge for all of us. Um, so Richard Moore, thank you for your okay. time. Uh, it's great to be here in St. Eugene's Cathedral here in, uh, in Derry. And uh, they've kind of let us film here. And um, I just really appreciate uh, your time today, but also I think I speak for everyone that probably will listen to this. And, um, uh, thank you for uh, your life of witness that shows us what it's like to view people as people first um, and to lead with empathy and kindness. And uh, so thank you, Richard, for your time. Thank you, Johnny. All right.